welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. The problem with Russia's war on Ukraine is that it really, of course, it's about Ukraine, it's against Ukraine. And I in no way wish to to remove Ukrainian agency here, but Ukraine isn't the problem. The problem is Russia and the fact that Russia sees Ukrainian political subjugation and sort of ownership, if you will, or ability to control Ukraine as central to its identity, to its national identity. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Jade McLean about her new book, Russia's War. We discussed the attitudes and perceptions of different groups in Russia towards the conflict and explored the reasons behind the support for the invasion and the popularity of Vladimir Putin. Chapter 7. Restoration, Redemption, Revenge. In 1982, The monument to commemorate the reunification of Ukraine with Russia was finally completed. The monumental arc crowned a statue of a Ukrainian and Russian worker launching forwards into the future together, set against the majestic backdrop of the Dnieper River. Forty years on, the Kiev City Council dismantled the statue and renamed the remaining sculpture the Arch of Freedom of the Ukrainian people. At around the same time, in the same country, only 300 miles east, Russian occupation forces re-erected a monument to Vladimir Lenin in the central square of the then-occupied city of Nova Kakhovka in Kherson region. It was the very same Lenin statue that Ukrainian activists had removed in February 2014 during the Revolution of Dignity. Superficially, these events tell a simple story. Russia is trying to revive the USSR while Ukraine is trying to dismantle the Soviet legacy. But this isn't about the Soviet Union. It isn't about anything except proving Russian power, as represented by the irony of re-erecting a Lenin statue in a country that Russian forces invaded off the back of a speech about decommunization. In his 21st of February speech, Putin set out his ahistoric conclusions. Bolshevik policy created Soviet Ukraine, which even today can justifiably be called Vladimir Ilyich Lenin's Ukraine. He is Ukraine's author and architect. And now, grateful descendants have demolished monuments to Lenin in Ukraine. This is what they call decommunization. Well, that suits us just fine. But let's not stop halfway, as they say. We are ready to show you what real decommunization means for Ukraine, Putin continued. But how did we get to a point where real decommunization ends up looking like a re-erected Lenin monument? Well, when symbolic politics came to signify not material realities, but abstracted ideas and emotion. The Lenin statue in Novokakhovka and elsewhere is a symbol of a worldview and of historical continuity and legacy. In such cases, these monumental Lenins have almost nothing whatsoever to do with Lenin the historical figure and everything to do with reproducing what is lost. As the cultural theorist Ilya Kalinin has argued, the Soviet past is reproducible and is only ever reproduced, because to update or transform it would risk splitting society. By reproducing Lenin, you neutralize him as well. He loses the dazzle and authenticity of the original. 
instead becoming a commodified symbol of aesthetic tastes or cultural preferences. It's like seeing a copy of an Andy Warhol print, or, perhaps more favourably, of a suprematist composition by Kasimir Malevich in someone's house. It doesn't have the same impact as seeing the original. It isn't imbued of the same history. It is reduced to aesthetic, a stand-in, for and representation of the person's preferences and identity. Hello, my name is Paula Muñoz, Communications Officer at the School of Security Studies. Today, I'm honored to be joined by a very special guest, Dr. Jade McLean, Senior Researcher in the War Studies Department at King's College London. Thank you very much for joining me today, Jade. So, my first question is, how has the Kremlin framed Russia's war against Ukraine? It's an important question, but I think there isn't one way that it has been framed. There are lots of different ways. And when we say the Kremlin, of course, the government has has its ways. It's often actually more a voice um, of, of moderation than some of the more extreme voices that we see among the so-called ultra-patriots. But if we want to talk very broadly about if we started to boil down all of the different narratives that we see by the different sort of state-aligned media, what we get is our a depiction of a war that firstly isn't a war against Ukraine. It's a war with the West for a new world order, but it's just a special military operation against Ukraine, which is happening so that Russia can save Ukraine or save Ukrainians, who are really just Russians in their view, from being taken over by the West, which wants to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian and to use Ukraine as a weapon to destroy Russia and essentially just like they didn't in World War II, where they did not anticipate the attack and from Nazi Germany and so um, were not prepared. This is like the inversion of that where they have, yes, perhaps it has been preemptive, but ultimately they had no choice. This is a defensive war. Do you think there is a widespread belief in this narrative by Russian citizens? In the, in the sense that Russia is ultimately a force for good, that the West has tried to humiliate Russia, that the West has encircled and is a threat towards Russia and that Ukrainians are essentially Russians. Yes, there is widespread belief, um, according to polling, not just since the invasion, but before then, because the war began in, in 2014. Um, whether or not the population fully supports the way in which the war is being waged, I think that's a different question. I think it's one we're going to get into today, but that's a lot trickier. Um, and, but in general, the point of Kremlin or state-aligned propaganda isn't to persuade or to convince people necessarily. There's lots of different ways that it works. Um, so this idea that the Kremlin needs everybody to be a sort of true believer, mobilized and, and ready to, you know, really, really believes. That's a bit of a misunderstanding of how authoritarian countries in the 21st century work. They're, they're not like the sort of what some might call the, the totalitarian regimes of, of the 20th century. You make the interesting argument in your book that the Russian war on Ukraine can't be solved in Ukraine because the problem lies in Russia's social and political imagination of itself. So can you explain what you mean by this? The problem with Russia's war on Ukraine is that it really, of course, it's about Ukraine, it's against Ukraine. And I in no way wish to, to remove Ukrainian agency here, but 
Ukraine isn't the problem. The problem is Russia and the fact that Russia sees Ukrainian political subjugation and sort of ownership, if you will, or ability to control Ukraine as central to its identity, to its national identity, to its sense of what's called ontological security. So that sense of being whole. So you can have that as an individual, that sense that of, of yourself as, as a whole, as a sort of entire being. You can also have that as a nation. And for different nations, different parts of their country are maybe so important or certain aspects may be so important that it might override other interests. And we, we see that with different countries. So arguably with Serbia and Kosovo, even though Serbia has at many times been enticed with lots of different sort of forms of membership or um, different deals, Serbia finds it very difficult to, to let go of Kosovo or to recognise um, Kosovo's um, autonomy because it's it's a central part to its its narrative, its autobiographical narrative of, of who it is as a country. And we see something similar in Russia, where really, if you take away Ukraine um, and then the current narrative that has been constructed in particular over the last 10 years um, and under the Kremlin's direction, but with some resonance among the population and on the basis of pre-existing myths, well, none of that really functions if you don't have a Ukraine that doesn't necessarily have to be completely subjugated and invaded, but at least controllable politically. And that was something that clearly um, that clearly wasn't possible and um, that appears to have been um, a rather decisive factor in Vladimir Putin's decision to, to launch a full-scale invasion in, in February 2022. And regarding the narratives and the sense of identity in Russia that you mentioned in your research, what could you highlight? You know, we all tell ourselves stories of, of who we are, of where we come from. And, you know, narratives and stories, they're just about making meaning, meaning making. And, and everybody needs to have some meaning and, and have some sense of, of who they are and how where they fit in the world around them. And in particular, since 2012, there's been a, you know, a really large sort of state um, directed, but but also, you know, as I say, with, with considerable resonance among um, broad swathes of the population in Russia, there's been a considerable effort to focus on creating a coherent post-Soviet Russian identity. And that was something that um, Boris Yeltsin really struggled with in the 1990s and that Vladimir Putin also struggled with really um, in the first decade, but he he didn't have to worry too much because there was economic growth and most people were just, just happy to have some stability and to, to be getting a bit richer. But when that started to, to tailor off and um, when there were protests um, following and, and during Vladimir Putin's sort of return to the presidency in, in, in 2012, there needed to be a new narrative. There needed to be a new element. So if previously the social contract was, okay, you, the population, stay out of politics and I will offer you stability and I will offer you economic growth and, and getting richer, the new social contract from 2012 onwards was, okay, you, the people, stay out of politics, but in return, you will belong to a great power. And he really built on the sense of humiliation and shame that many Russians feel um, in relation to the very difficult, the very traumatic and turbulent period of the 1990s, when, you know, there was a lot of hope about a better life. But in fact, what you had was, in you know, crazy inflation, terrible murder rates, um, awful demographics, you know, people lost their status, People weren't getting paid. People were being paid in, in in goods rather than in wages. And the welfare state collapsed. And you all of a sudden had, you know, this massive and, and rather ugly, or incredibly ugly inequality in a country that obviously under the Soviet Union had was not used to, to, to seeing this. And so that was a very difficult period. And Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin more generally has been 
have been really adept at almost uh, uh, weaponizing or instrumentalizing that narrative. And and Gulnaz um, Sharafat Udinova, who's over at the Russia Institute at King's, has, has written a wonderful book on on exactly how the 90s is used to consolidate that sense of Russia as under attack from the West and Russia's needing to defend itself and its identity and its culture from the West, which is ultimately alien to it, but also harmful. You also make the point that historically there has been denigratory attitudes towards Ukrainians in Russia. Can you tell us more about this? There's a varied vocabulary um, for um, discussing Ukrainians. I, I won't um, use the terms here as I know many Ukrainians find them deeply, deeply offensive and I, I don't wish to offend them, but um, they're very popular in terms of their use to describe um, Ukrainians. I think the core element to think about here is that we focus very much on the propaganda, on the sort of the television shows and the media, but they're often very over the top. And I think what we sometimes overlook is the impact, the much more silent um, or unnoticeable impact of popular culture. It was as part of my um, PhD because I became interested in Russian depictions of, of Ukraine in 2014. So after my PhD, I tracked um, some of the depictions of, of Ukraine following the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. And when you watch the films, um, you realize that Ukrainians, they're, they're very often a feature, particularly in the war films, but they're either a sort of a yokel, a friendly yokel, who's obviously, um, who comes across as a bit of an idiot, um, to put it bluntly, and uses, you know, the odd Ukrainian term, but but basically just speaks Russian in a bit of a dialectic, farmery way. Or Ukrainians are, are traitors and Nazi collaborators, and they're pretty much one of the two. Um, so you can either be sort of like a friendly but but stupid ally, or, you, you know, a little brother figure, or you're some sort of um, evil, sly, Nazi collaborating snake. And these are the two roles um, that, that are really afforded to Ukrainians within television series um, and within films. And of course, um, this combined with the type of over-the-top propaganda that we see from the state and combined with um, you know, Vladimir Putin's own speeches about how um, they had to rescue Crimea or else, um, you know, Banderovtsi, which is a name for, for wartime Ukrainian nationalists, uh, some of whom collaborated with the Nazis and, and many of whom were, were fascists. Um, Vladimir Putin had to, him arguing that he had to annex Crimea in order to save it from, from the Banderovtsi and the heirs of Bandera. You have this constantly, I suppose, these reinforcing elements, especially when you remember that the Kremlin has been by stealth introducing a program of internet sovereignty, which essentially means that the algorithms cut out unapproved sources of news or, or very much sort of push them down. And so you have this kind of aggregatory effect or cumulative effect where you're actually seeing a lot of information that reinforces this sense that there are good Ukrainians um, who are subservient to Russia and there are bad Ukrainians who, who are ultimately Nazis and that you kind of need to save the good Ukrainians from who are just like you, but, but need your, but a bit simple and so need your protection from the bad Ukrainians. As you have mentioned, the media has played a significant role in shaping public opinion. So can you share some examples of the types of content citizens in Russia are regularly seeing, hearing or reading? Well, in my, originally, my focus has always been on state, well, on a mixture, but I've looked at state television, at state-aligned, um, you know, uh, news sites such as Lenta or um, state-aligned newspapers such as Komsomolska Pravda or Rasiska Gazeta. But I also looked at Telegram. And one of the reasons why I did is because Telegram is uncensored. And so you can get a sense of 
um, what people, I suppose, are choosing um, to watch. And you also get a sense of a different demographic. So Telegram isn't as young um, as perhaps you might think it's not that everybody on there is under 25, that the biggest age group is is 25 to, to 40. So young, but but not super young. Um, but there's also a considerable amount of people in the 40 to, to 55 age bracket who, who also use it. And when we look at this, we can when we look at these channels, we start to see that there's you know considerable variation in terms of you can you can identify different groups and different groups push different narratives. So you might have your politicians who often tend to be quite focused on the West. By comparison, the war correspondents and the ultra the war correspondents in particular, they really just focus on Russian military might. That sort of typical, I suppose, like war propaganda, sort of war porn videos. And on Ukraine, there's not so much mention really of, of the West or some of these more abstracted narratives about, you know, gays and satanists and gay parades and this is a war against trans people um they don't really engage with that it's it's much more well it's much more on the ground for, for reasons that that perhaps could be expected as well if you look at the opposition media which is again uncensored on telegram what you see is that they have there is essentially no crossover between opposition media narratives. I coded 75,000 posts from 16 different channels um, during the first three months of the war. And I, um, in particular, did like a close textual reading of um, the 100 most viral posts, so that had the most viewer engagement for each channel. And I chose sort of a variety of popular, but also, you know, different, I suppose, different tastes, if you will. And there is there is considerable difference. Again, if you look at the sort of more extreme nationalists, there's a lot of focus on traitors that doesn't really come up elsewhere. Um, the more standard state TV is interested in modelling, you know, what it means to be a hero, a lot of celebrities sort of proving their heroism as a nice kind of exemplar for people to follow. The only thing that's sort of worth noting here is that, of course, a lot of these channels, they also exist on TV or in some other space, um, as well as Telegram. But this variety, I think, is important because often we have this quite binary understanding of, of how Russian media works and also of Russian society, that you have your pro-war, you have your anti-war. And in reality, that's just not, things are not so black and white. That's that's not how, how people interact with or or think about things, particularly in an authoritarian society where people are politically apathetic. And so in order to understand and to grasp how these different narratives work and how people engage with them, I offer up a sort of model of sort of authoritarian spectrum of allies, which is which is based on um, the original um, spectrum of allies used by civil civil society groups, where essentially you don't try to target you ignore anybody who's actively opposed to you. It's not worth the resources trying to convince them. And instead try to bump everybody else up. So, you know, if you've got passive opposition, you want them to be neutral. You want neutral to kind of become passive supporters. You want passive supporters to become active. And we can use a similar model to understand how Russian channels work. And when you start to look at them, you see that there are clearly certain narratives that work towards certain audiences. And you can sort of look at this by the different channels. But broadly, of course, the government doesn't try to convince the, the active opposition. In fact, it does very terrible things to the active opposition or it tries to make them apathetic and think, well, what is the point? If people are already apathetic and apolitical, it tries to sort of, well, not the government, but, but the state line media tries to render them into a sort of loyal neutrals, like my country, right or wrong. Fine, I don't really know what's going on. I don't really understand. You know, probably they know better than me, but all I do know is I'm Russian. I've got one country. The West has always been out to get us. And 
even if I don't really agree with this war, I'm going to stand with my country because, you know, my country rights are wrong. Then you have, so you have that group of the loyal neutrals and then you want often the state by media or the ideal would be to move them up into the sort of ritual supporters, by which I mean people who support the government and they support the policy, but they're not really extremist about it. They don't, you know, they don't really, really care because if you have people who really, really care, they can become quite critical <laughs> of you quite quickly. And so, that's another place where that's another way that the the Kremlin they don't really want people to be active supporters. They want people really who who are a bit more detached or who support it in a plebiscitary way in the sense of, well, I support it because I support the government and because, you know, Putin's my hero or or whatnot. How do you see Russian media's role in shaping public opinion as different from what Western media is doing in shaping our own opinions of the world? In some ways, there's a lot of similarities, which may sound odd, but you actually see quite a lot of the same tropes, quite a lot of the same sort of emotive attitude, quite a lot of the same binaries applied, but obviously in different ways. And that, and I'm not comparing the Western and the Russian media. I'm not making some kind of moral judgment. It's just one of the things I found interesting is that you saw, of course, in the West, we use the sort of the World War II narrative quite a lot to understand it, um, to understand the conflict. And of course, in Russia, it's always been the, the conflict against Ukraine has always been understood. Um, you know, it's always been framed as a sort of rerun of World War II. So there's that element. And also, I mean, sometimes just down to the very like, sort of tropes that are used. So there's a trope in Russian media of, um, you know, Zelensky living in a bunker, like completely cut off from the world. And obviously we have the exact same one, um, you know, about, about Putin and Ukraine has the exact same one about Putin, you know, um, living in a bunker cut off from the world. So that's one one thing that I found quite amusing was that you had actually sometimes really, really similar um, imagery and really, really similar narratives and tropes, but just inverted. And that's why I chose to, to start the, the book in the way I did, you know, to try to help people to think about actually, you know, if they were in that context, what would they believe? I think that is one of the big issues that we see things through a very Western lens. We have a very kind of simplified understanding of what it means to live in an authoritarian country, you know, as something that's just, you're either for the regime or against the regime. You're either a hero or, you know, you're either a victim or a perpetrator. And, and really most people are a bit of both or neither. <laughs> And well, what do you think the long-term implications of the war in Ukraine will be for Russia? I don't think there'll be anything good, sadly. I think that, of course, um, Russia is able to look to other countries. Um, I think the, the idea that when people say Russia's isolated, well, it isn't really, because there's this, you know, India and, and China obviously still continue. But most Russians certainly measure themselves against the West. It's the West where they want to sort of go on holiday or um, where they want to sort of go and buy things. That's kind of that has the cultural capital, I suppose, just in terms of how it's measured. So there are certain things that, that, that aren't going to be replaceable. Perhaps that's only a superficial element, though I have to say um, I think Russians are an incredibly resilient people, but from my research I don't see um, very much evidence that there's you know, a real strong enthusiasm um, for this war and for, for the way in which it's being waged as opposed to in 2014 when there was a really celebratory atmosphere over the, the annexation of, of Crimea, that this is much more of a sort of acceptance or, or an acquiescence, um, sort of, okay, well now we've done it, we, we better, we're we better finish it and you know we should we might as well win attitude um i think that said a lot of it depends on how the west reacts because 
already we're starting to see some pressure um, or some kind of murmurings, um, even from some of Ukraine's launch allies, such as the, the current UK government. Um, oh, we need to get Ukraine into as strong a position as possible for it to negotiate. But what, what is Ukraine going to negotiate? Because as, as I sort of explained at the start, really, I don't see that this isn't an issue that, get, that can be solved for Ukraine doing this or that. This is an issue that's only solved by Russia um, being able to to reimagine a, a different sort of coherent sense of of its place in the world and how it relates to the world and and its role in the world and um, that that isn't dependent on a, a rather outdated understanding of being a great power or alternatively if of course because it's not for anybody else except for Russians to, to kind of work on that and and, and change or or re or adapt that identity though many nations obviously um, adapt their identity it's and many <laughs> nations arguably need to adapt their identity but that isn't going to possible and I think for a long time that won't be possible then um, I believe that that Western countries um, should focus on um, getting Ukraine into as strong a position as possible not for negotiation but so that we can then kind of almost find a way where the the conflict becomes somewhat frozen and we can deter Russia defend Ukraine as as much as possible and and work on a sort of containment containment 2.0 policy. If the war can't be won in Ukraine do you see any potential solutions to the crisis? If I'm honest with you, I don't, and I appreciate that. Like that's not a very helpful answer, but I don't, I don't really see any solution um, short of Russia just taking its troops out. But that doesn't doesn't feel incredibly logical. It doesn't feel incredibly plausible right now. And so I suppose instead, I think that's I suppose to go back to, to my answer in the, in the previous to the previous question. That's where I I think there needs to be a sort of a longer term planning because sometimes you do get the impression, speaking to policymakers, that okay, there's they still believe there's some way back to the status quo, and you have this talk of. Or we need to make sure, you know, that we, you know, show Russians this and we show Russians that. And there's really not this understanding that we think we're X, Y, Z, but Russians may not think that. I mean, in particular for the UK, the UK doesn't have a great reputation among many Russians. And there's a real sort of lack of understanding. People seem to think that, oh, okay, if Boris Johnson or, or somebody else puts a video out in Russian saying, oh, in, in terrible Russian saying, oh, we don't think this is your war, we think it's just Putin's war, that all of these sort of, you know, millions of Russians who are sitting there completely against the war, except that they're just terrified They'll hear that and be like, oh, we have a friend in Russia. We have a friend in the UK. I mean, it's just such nonsense. It just betrays such a simplified understanding of even just basic human psychology, let alone actually what's happening in Russia. Um, so, no, I don't I don't really see a solution. And I do feel increasingly a bit pessimistic because when I wrote the book, I understood why the, the decision to call it Russia's war could seem a bit provocative, as if I was seeking to blame all Russians, which I categorically am not. I'm trying to do and, and would never wish to do. But I presumed that by the time that it, the book was published would be in a situation where we're having a much more kind of, not not me and you, I mean, but with policymakers and the general state of the discourse um, would be sort of a lot more, a lot more sophisticated and nuanced and informed by research. And really that was a bit naive because if anything, it's become even more just a shorthand that you have these two binary things where either it's Russia's war and that means that you think all Russians are you know, innately evil and imperialistic and all of them are guilty or it's Putin's war and all Russians are secretly against the war and it's just, you know, one evil man who started this war in 2022. And obviously both of them are just, are just a nonsense. What message do you hope readers take away from your book and what do you think it's so important for us to understand Russian perspectives on the conflict? 
I hope that if readers take away one thing, it's just the opportunity to reflect on how they might respond in a similar situation and to imagine, you know, almost to imagine themselves. We have a tendency to always imagine ourselves as the victims. We never imagine ourselves as not necessarily the perpetrators, but just the kind of the bystanders or the people who sort of went along with it because it was a bit easier and their lives were a bit harder. So I suppose the empathy is, is the one thing I would want to, to take away, the empathy, but, but not the sympathy. And the reason why I think empathy is so important is because if we if we can't learn to, to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and understand how they see the world without sympathising in an ideal world, it should be done as, as sort of objectively as, as possible, as unemotively as possible. And I appreciate that's difficult. And I'm not sure that I, well, I'm certain that I don't always achieve it. And I'm not sure that I necessarily always achieve it in the book, though I, I did strive for it. But the reason why I think it's so important is because without it, we're just going to make really stupid policy. <laughs> We are now moving on to our future section where we look at the researcher behind the research. So what inspired you to write the book Russia's War? Um, as, as I sort of mentioned very briefly earlier, um, it was when I was living in, in Moscow in 2014 that I became interested in, um, in Russian propaganda around Ukraine and particularly sort of how it intersected with Russia's own narratives of itself, Russia's narratives about its place in the world and, and in the West. And um, I, you know, I began sort of doing large scale media analysis and, and went and did a did a PhD on the topic. So I've always been interested in it and I've always found it bizarre how I've always found the Western sort of arguments around it, academic and public and, and policymaker, quite cut off from, from Russian understandings of, of what the war was about. But whilst I felt it was important, obviously for a long time, the war was pretty frozen in that sense. And it didn't seem for a long time that, that it was going to, to expand beyond that, that area. Obviously, when, when we got to 2022 and it, it clearly had expanded and, and Putin had launched a full-scale invasion, I, to be honest with you, I can't really remember anything from the first couple of weeks just because of just the horror and, and the shock of it. But as things started to settle, I was just personally in a bit of an odd position because, I mean, I had... This had been something that I'd always been studying, a sort of Russian understandings of, of their identity, of Ukraine, of the West, etc. Um, you know, I had I had all of the, these kind of thoughts on it, but also I had um, a newborn baby. Um, so I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, you know, my friends were going out to Shemish, you know, near the border and helping. And there, there were just so many things I, I just couldn't do, you know, if I, I, I mean, I also had a two-year-old son, but it just didn't seem very fair to sneak a breastfeeding baby into a war zone. Um, so there was, I just kind of was sitting there doom scrolling and I was asking my Ukrainian friends what I could do to help. But ultimately I just felt really useless and I had all of this energy and I just started to write things down in order to make sense of them in order to kind of slot in to understand how we got here but also sort of how how Russia a country which you know I've always loved so much like how that society became got to this point because there's nothing specific about about Russians um you know what what were the kind of external factors that that contributed to this how did the media work you know what, to what extent was personal choice I suppose to work out for my for myself in a way and that's really where the the book came from is to stop myself going insane <laughs> Um, you know, from watching it all and, and just doom scrolling, but also just to try to, to sort it all out in my head um, to just understand the 
the tragedy um, and just the horror that that was happening to Ukraine, but but also that it clearly happened inside Russia for, for that to be possible. As a researcher, how do you approach the complexities of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, I stay in my lane. So I think we do see a little bit, unfortunately, of people trying to kind of jump ship and, and talking about the war as if um, and the two countries, um, even though they don't really have any any specialist knowledge of, of either of them. Um, even for me, I learned Ukrainian. I've done research in Ukraine and and whatnot, but even still, I would see myself much more as a, as a Russianist, and clearly that's why I focus much more on the Russian view of, of Ukrainians um, in the book. So that's one element, um, I stick, stick to what I know. But also I think having a wide variety of sources, um, and again, I guess I was, I don't know if fortunate is the right word, but I was in a position, fortunate or otherwise, where you know I already had longstanding people you know that I sort of regularly spoke to um, about these issues, um, these broader issues of Russia's place in the world, geopolitics, in terms of, um, and, and that included as well, sort of online communities in which I'd long been sort of embedded, um, sometimes anonymously, sometimes not. And it meant that I, I had a pool of people that, that I could readily speak to, to to get a grasp of different groups that, that I knew existed um, within Russian society from my time of living there and, and how they were reacting. And it was very interesting because, you know, I expected there might be these dramatic shifts. And at first there were some really unusual bits, but in the end, people just tried to get back to sort of where they were previously in terms of their attitude. Um, it just took a little bit of time to to adapt to the new reality, but then people tried to get back, I suppose, to, to where their original positions had been. So I think diversity of sources, but also, you know, this is literature um, and research that, that, you know, I'd been doing for a decade. So even though it had to be a lot of the thoughts kind of needed to be worked through in terms of that last 10, 15 percent. OK, but how did we get to this bit? You know, I had I had everything up until the war. I had all the research there and I had a lot of the thinking and the theory there. So I just needed that, I suppose, that last element. And, and that's where in particular I found the, the telegram analysis very useful. How did you go about gathering information on the attitudes of different groups in Russia? Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's two elements here. So obviously originally, like normally, if before the before the full scale invasion, um, I would just do field work um, with different people, you know, sort of obviously, um, you know, that sort of eth ethnographic work as well as sort of media analysis. Um, now that's a bit more obviously it's very difficult to travel to Russia um, I, I haven't I haven't tried it I, I'm not openly banned but I'm a bit, a bit frightened <laughs> to try my luck um, so probably safer not to clearly it's more difficult but as I was saying I already have these groups of people that I've been doing research and, and having these conversations with so I could speak to them on online and uh, you know or through signal or through sort of encrypted systems and I, I already because I'd known them for sort of six seven eight years I, I already sort of understood um, I was able to kind of I suppose gauge gauge the responses in, in an appropriate context So yes, definitely speaking to people, but also I think, you know, netnography, so embedding yourself in online communities and just kind of watching how they engage, how they deal with, with different issues and, and using that as a, as a sort of form of context. And then beyond that, of course, looking at media. And one of the nice things that I like about looking at Telegram media is there's certain software that you can use. And as I discussed, where you can also include an element of virality. Now you have to caveat that because you don't know 
obviously there are a lot of bots on Russian Telegram, um, you know, an incredible amount of bots. Um, so you can't be too specific with it, but you can use it for a sense of what viewers are engaging with. And if you're not looking for, okay, this specific message about this specific thing was the most viewed, but you're more broadly starting wanting to look at, okay, well, our narratives that um, have the main kind of coherent message as being about the West, are they the ones that are the most viral, um, then I think you can do it in terms of more general trends because, and I think it's important to have this mix. And of course, you can also look at third research and there's been some in really interesting sociological data from places like Russian Field. Also, Levada, to a certain extent, there are definitely some caveats that that, that need to be made about, socio about sociological polls in, in a country like Russia. Um, but I think some of the less direct questions can still be useful in terms of, of gauging, um, you know, what where the population stands on, on different issues. Well, and in relation to that, were Russian citizens open to talking about their opinions on the world with you or were any of the interviews particularly difficult for you? Um, do you know what? Everybody was really quite open apart from a couple of people. And then we just didn't do interviews because I didn't want to speak to anybody who, who wasn't open. I mean, some of the people I spoke to were, you know, very prominent, well-known figures, people like Fyodor Lukyanov, Vladimir Arlov, um, Dmitry Trenin, who were obviously very close to, to the Kremlin. And then, but then a lot of the people I spoke to were, were ordinary people. In general, if, if people weren't public about their views or they weren't a public person, I just chose to pseudonymize them anyway, because I was um, just to be on the safe side. Um, but I mean, like I said, some of the people were friends. A lot of the people were kind of friendly acquaintances, um, you know, because I knew them from my time sort of working at different universities or like doing different research fellowships um, or studying at different universities. And yeah, I suppose we, I just spoke, I found them useful, I suppose, like, like weather veins or gauges for, for, for different attitudes, um, you know, particularly those acquaintances that I met since 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 2014, where I kind of perhaps had an eye to, to understanding communication in that way. In terms of what was more difficult, I think I found it. I think I found some of the interview of Dmitry Trenin a bit difficult when you when he refers to like Bandarite ideology because I, I just found that I found that very sad to to see him. I suppose or, or to hear him or read him use use those use those words. And then I think sometimes I found it hard on a couple of occasions. I found it a bit hard to well not to keep my temper. That's that's a bit much, but. Obviously, in general, I just try to, you know, speak as little as possible. I want to hear their view, the, you know, the interviewees' um, views. That's why I'm interviewing them. But I certainly, um, there were certainly a couple of interviews where uh, maybe I had to bite my tongue, especially on some of the stuff that was said about Britain. I don't see myself as an especially sort of patriotic or defensive person, but, but some of the stuff that was said, it's just like, okay. You know, about like sort of nuking. I'm not sure if it's in the book. There's one in particular about like, oh, sort of Britain needing to be nuked. And I just thought, okay, I mean, you know, I'm British. This is kind of awkward. <laughs> yes. Yes, of course. No, it makes sense. And well, what advice will you give to students, researchers, or anyone interested in exploring Russian's perspective on the war or more broadly, war, memory politics, and identity construction? 
But one of the things that I often got told when I first started going into it is, oh, don't look at that because it's not interesting. It's just mainstream. And that's a nonsense. Look at what other people are watching. If you want to understand, like if you want to understand about Britain, you could watch all the art films that you liked and you'd understand a certain subsect of Britain. But if you sat down and watched Coronation Street and EastEnders for a couple of nights, even though, I mean, I myself don't watch Coronation Street or EastEnders, but more Britons watch that. You're going to get more of an understanding of the context and the sort of narratives, um, you know, the, the or the popular culture references that that most Britons will use and it's a similar thing for 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 Russia so you know watch what they're watching understand like what are the popular films etc etc but beyond that and I think this is a really important point in terms of other debates as well I would suggest anybody starting out that if they learn Russian um, and if they're interested in let's say a Russian war Russian war against uh, Russians wars against like Chechnya or or Russia sort of control of Belarus or, or whatever it is but to try to learn another, try to learn the other person's side because, or the other country's side, sorry, because I found that very helpful um, with Ukraine. So in 2017, when I started learning Ukrainian, it was to understand the sort of, so I could read the Ukrainian side. And it meant that I felt, in particular, the Ukrainian nationalist side, and I could understand the the nuance, um, And because in the nationalist side, a lot of that was only available in Ukrainian. Um, I mean, the actual nationalists, sorry, from the time period, not the imagined sort of Russian nationalists, uh, nationalists of, of the Russian imagination of, of the of World War II, the wartime period. So I would I would suggest that I would I would suggest yes, make sure you engage with what actually sort of Russians are watching, maybe rather than than what seems like a sexy or, or cool topic. And then secondly, make sure that you, that you also I, I would suggest trying to study a, a second a second Slavic language or a second language from from the region. Thirdly, is to make sure that you listen to as many different opinions um, of Russians as possible. So yes, definitely listen to people who are sort of from the opposition who have a view that's easier to take as as the Westerner, if we put it that way. Definitely listen to the sort of you know, media crazies or whatnot but also listen to all the different people in between um, and listen to sort of Russian experts, um, listen to people like Dmitry Trenin and Fyodor Lukyanov not because you have to believe um, in everything they say but because if you can't handle what they're saying, you're really going to struggle with, with you know, what, what a lot of people in Russian society are, going, uh, are saying. And, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to agree with them to, to listen to them. But it's going to be very difficult for, for students to spend, you know, long periods of time in, in Russia. Um, I think probably on average I spent half or if not most of my adult life in Russia. Now I don't know when I'll go back. And obviously it's not going to necessarily be that safe for, for students to go back. So that means making sure you you really engage you really do take every opportunity to to engage with with russian speakers and with the various the various russias that exist russia's not a monolith well and to finish this podcast episode your forthcoming book memory makers will be launched at king's on june can you give us a little preview sure um so this is weirdly this is It's the second book that's coming out, but I, I wrote it. I wrote it before I, I'd finished writing it before I even, before the full scale invasion even happened. So definitely before Russia's war was written, the book. The book is about the last 10 years and how the Kremlin, but also society, like Russian society, co created a new sense of, of what it means to be Russian. And I argue that there are sort of, yes, they use um, history as that defining feature. Um, of what it means to be Russian is a certain sense of history, and that is Russia as a great power, Russia that needs a strong state, Russia as a country that needs a strong state, and Russia as a country that has its own special messianic path that's that's different to the West's. 
And I look at how free core events sort of depicted to, to reinforce this. One of those events is the, is the 2014 Revolution of Dignity. The, the other is the imposition of, of strong sanctions in late 2014. And the third is Russia's intervention in Syria. But then I also look at the civil, well, the society aspect and the sense of how the Kremlin sort of funds all of these films about World War II, all of these children's patriotic camps, all of this patriotic education. So the almost the the history that they're trying to promote, it's not just something that you see on the news or in propaganda or in school books, but it actually becomes really part of everyday life. World War II is everywhere and World War II is constantly being conflated with the present day to an extent where you know people begin to believe almost that they are sort of born again, um, born again Red Army fighters. And that's the tragic thing is seeing the full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine, it almost feels like that that narrative has come to perhaps an inevitable, if incredibly tragic, um, end point. Well, thank you very much, Jade, for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by the communications team from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you will find in the podcast description. If you have enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider to help us reach more listeners. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast.